1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Political Party This one featuring former Education Secretary Nikki Morgan We had a great chat about uh, what life is like at Cabinet level uh, Specifically under David Cameron And then um, what's like to be out of the Cabinet under Theresa May Nikki was absolutely brilliant Gave loads of personal insights and funny stories and this was recorded on the day that Article 50 was triggered, so a very interesting atmosphere uh, down at the gig. If you'd like to come to future gigs, uh, check out um, availability on the website, uk. I'm also on tour with my own show, Uh, It's my political party, and I'll cry if I want to. I'm coming to the Nottingham Glee Club, where I'm from, on the 11th of May. Well, I'm from Nottingham. I'm not specifically from the Glee Club. But that's on the 11th of May, Thursday the 11th of May, at the Nottingham Glee. Then on the 25th of May, Thursday the 25th, I'm at the Aldershot West End Centre. And on Friday the 26th of May, I'll be at the Dorchester Arts Centre. And don't forget, you can see Unspun, I think there's one left next week, on Dave at 10 pm on the Wednesday. Thanks very much. See you on the other side. Thank you very much, everyone. Good evening. Hello. Hey. Hello, welcome to the show. Obviously, nothing good on telly tonight, but thank you for coming. <laughs> thank you very much for coming. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Hey. Excellent. Wow. Uh, in full voice, I'll give me a cheer if this is your first time. Hey. Excellent. Welcome to the show for the first time. I hope you enjoy it. We've got a wonderful guest tonight. And of course, today we meet on the day that Article 50 was triggered.
2: Hey. Hey.
1: That's one way to smoke them out.
2: <laughs> um, well,
1: very happy that Article 50's been triggered. Yes, absolutely. Well, you sort of immediately U-turned. I mean, I know a lot of Lee voters got anxiety, but this is incredible. But <laughs> well, welcome to the show, everyone, anyway. Obviously today, Article 50 was triggered. Um, it's also um, John Major's birthday.
2: <laughs> Remain campaigner
1: John Major. It's also Remain campaigner Tony Blair's wedding anniversary. Uh, that's right. And uh, seven weeks to the day since Remain campaigner Jeremy Corbyn started campaigning to stay in the EU.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very momentous day uh, for the Remain campaign. Obviously there's a whole load of things still be- to be decided uh, with Brexit. We, just, we know that in two years we'll be out. Uh, we're still yet to guarantee the rights of EU nationals. Uh, living in the UK. Millions of people, obviously, living in the UK uh, that want to stay in the EU, or as it's known, Scotland. Uh, <laughs> the Scottish people would like to know what's going to happen to them. But well, obviously, I think we, we're all slightly concerned about, about what it means. We may have a second independence referendum in Scotland. Do you have any Scottish friends in? Hey. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um,
1: and would you like Scotland to be independent? No.
2: Yeah.
1: don't yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> care. Fucking, fucking London cabbage back. Don't care, mate. Just tell me where you want to go. I'll fucking drop you off. Don't care. <laughs> Would you not be worried, though, if, if Scotland left the union? No, them. <laughs> right, OK. <I can't. laughs> this is why Brexit was a bad idea. we fucking literally turn on and on each other. Fucking hell. Um, so there was a Scottish guy over there, wasn't there? Um, Do you think Scotland will stay in the UK? Um, <laughs> I think that says it all. Hey, <laughs> I can't predict any referendum these days. It's very hard. I mean, the, the only good thing is, if there is another referendum, at least give, it gives Gordon Brown something to do with his life. <laughs> so, Gordon Brown's annual referendum speech is the only bit of work I think he gets these days. Uh, I do worry about Theresa May's tone in dealing with the SNP. Um, when she was asked about it the other week, she said, now's not the time. <laughs> Which does sound a bit patronising, doesn't it? <laughs> now's not the time. Adult speaking. Off you pop. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, Walk, don't run. <laughs> And then she had the cheek to say, it wouldn't be fair to give the Scottish people a referendum because you can't give people a vote when the terms of the union they would be voting on aren't clear. And they don't have all the information to hand as to what would happen afterwards. The cheeky cow. Uh, of course, last week uh, in Parliament, just around the corner, was the awful uh, terrorist attack. Uh, that was horrible to watch uh, and horrible to see some of the reactions to it. Nigel Farage was immediately on Fox News, you may have seen the footage, and saying, Well, this is what happens when you open up your borders to multiculturalism, to absolutely unfettered immigration. This is what happened. Uh, now, in some way, Nigel's right. Uh, immigration, uh, had we controlled our immigration, um, that's I it would have been different. Uh, a quarter of the doctors and 11% of the NHS staff helping the people wouldn't have been here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but that was his point Uh, obviously in the immediate hours I I was watching it all on Sky uh, there was a race really to to name the attacker and uh, Channel 4 were the first people to name the man as Abu Izzadeen. and Home Affairs correspondent goes on Channel 4 because we know for a fact Abu Izzadeen gets repeated throughout the day and then at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon the same guy pops up and goes yes I I I did seem quite sure earlier that it was Abu (laughs) (laughs) Izzadeen, but his friends are telling me that he's still in prison.
2: <laughs>
1: now, as far as alibis go, that is rock solid. <laughs> Where were you on the night of the attack? Uh, in a cell, watched over by CCTV and an armed guard. You? <laughs> um, so it wasn't Abu Isidine. It, was, uh, it was Khalid Massoud uh, who carried out the attack. Uh, but that later was revealed that it wasn't his original name. His original name was Adrian Elms, uh, a 52-year-old man, British-born from Kent, Uh, Now, we shouldn't be surprised, they're extremists from Kent, but usually they're white and over
2: 65.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Sun went to extreme lengths to try and get an angle on this. They went to the hotel that he'd stayed in the night before of the attack, uh, down in Brighton, had a look round his room, and even went on TripAdvisor for bad reviews. (laughs) This is part of the Sun article. Uh, they went on TripAdvisor. They found the following quotes. Stay for one night only. Very tired-looking hotel in need of refurbishment. Uh, another person who'd stayed in the same hotel said, I stay in hotels most weeks, and this has to be one of the worst I've stayed in. Now, I'm not sure what they were expecting to find. A final review that said, bed was lumpy, death to the west. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm
1: not sure what... what good- they also quote an unnamed source of the hotel, and this is, in a strange way, quite sweet British logic. On both occasions, he was asking for a cheaper rate. You'd have thought if you were hell-bent on committing a terror attack, you'd chuck it all on the credit card and forget <laughs> the... <laughs> I don't think they've grasped the sort of guy they had on their hands. Oh, he's ordered room service, the flash bastard. I bet he's planning another atrocity. What
2: the
1: fucking hell sort of... Angle is that? Um, Obviously, in Parliament, the MPs were on lockdown. um, And it was very dignified. And I think all of us who who enjoy politics, and hopefully that's all of us in this room, it's always good to see people across the political divide uniting and being magnanimous and being dignified. And there was a lot of that. Um, But you'd be reassured to know that... um, Political, the political divide wasn't set aside uh, completely because there was a report in the Financial Times uh, about what happened in the chamber during the lockdown. Some of you might have seen this. Jim Pickard in the Financial Times said one Labour MP claims that when a trolley of sandwiches was brought into the lockdown commons yesterday, quote, the Tory MPs ate the lot. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: oh, that's the spirit of the blitz, isn't it? I just want to say, Mr Speaker, what an honour it is to, to cross the divide. Like, hang on, who's had all the Scotch eggs, you greedy Tory bastards? <laughs> but there's a twist here, um, because Patrick Kidd in The Times has an alternative version of events. He says several MPs were held back for a while, but one tells me that when she finally ventured in, the trolleys were bare. Quote, the SNP cleaned out the lot like a plague of locusts. <laughs> We saw them sitting in their seats with piles of nosh. Three or four chocolate bars and a a mound of sandwiches each. And this is my favourite line. It was like a buffet version of the Barnet formula.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell.
1: You can't politicise a buffet, for God's sake.
2: Hang
1: on, where's all the oil gone? It's like Iraq all over again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so thank God that uh, life, uh, life continued as usual. Uh, Douglas Castle has finally uh, left UKIP, of course, as well, uh, which may sadden some people. Aaron Banks and Nigel Farage, uh, by the way, were never convinced that he was a proper UKIP man. Uh, and they're right, he's not. Uh, he got elected to Parliament.
2: <laughs> so always stood
1: out like a sore thumb in that party. Uh, Paul Nuttall's problems continue to... My, I think it's my favourite interview of the year. It's Paul Nuttall... Trying to draw a line under all these scandals. Going on Peston on Sunday, and he says, Look, I never, I, never, I, never, I never lied on the record. I never took us into a legal war. I was never caught in a paedophile ring.
2: <laughs>
1: caught. <laughs> Echoes out of that sentence. Yeah, they get caught. Only these stupid ones get caught. <laughs> <laughs> He's continued to have his issues. B- b- all. Uh, and obviously, in America, uh, which is so much of the focus of our uh, attentions these days, uh, Donald Trump continues to be... I have to admit, I disgracefully find it very entertaining to watch. Uh, mostly because... Uh, I like doing the voice around the house, by the way. He <laughs> uh, look so cool, by the way, when you speak saying, Does all that thing. Uh, it was a great clip of him. You might have seen this week that their health care bill, the Republican health care bill, didn't just get voted down on the floor of the House. It was withdrawn. Because even though they got a majority in both houses, they couldn't get it through. It was this great clip of Donald Trump being interviewed about Obamacare afterwards. He goes, I don't like Obamacare, by the way. I don't like Obamacare. But it's going to fail. It's going to fail so bad. You know, it's going to implode. And then it will explode.
2: <laughs>
1: Scientifically impossible. You know, it will get so dry, it's wet. Yeah, that's right. Believe that, by the way. So cool. So, so great to be here. I love at it. It's the lips and the hand, and then the bite. And then he'll just pronounce words differently for no reason, like China. Just the utter disdain that he's got on his face. I love imagining what he would say about some particular things. You know the FBI, by the way? They're investigating me. The FBI? Just those little looks. The FBI, you know, they say I got Russian ties. Not true. The one I wore yesterday said, made in China. This <laughs> is true, by the way. Everything I say is true. I have all my ideas myself, by the way. First they come into my mind, then they come out of my mouth. Sometimes the other way around.
2: <laughs>
1: that's how you know. Hey, Kellyanne. That's cool. Great. great seal. How you all doing? <laughs> oh, that's so weird. There we go. St. Patrick's Day. I had the Irish uh, tea shake, the, uh, the, t- the titty shake, the, the Irish dude. He came over. We had the Irish guy come over. Uh... I said to him, I like, I love St. Patrick's Day. I got a friend called Patrick, but he ain't the same, you know? Yeah, yeah, five kids by six different mothers. You do the math. That yeah. guy. That guy. I just love I would, I would, just love doing him all the time. Uh, <laughs> I just couldn't do him around the house, but he to do my girlfriend's head in, I think. I did not leave. It, that was not me. I did not leave the town on the floor of the bathroom. That's fake news. Okay, you need to sit down now. Okay, that's over. Okay, so there we go. That's yeah, fine. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I think i will rather overindulge myself there.
2: <laughs>
1: it's just so much fun. Um, we got a phenomenal guest in the second half, and I interviewed her last night, um, but I shall interview her in more detail. <laughs> How is that an innuendo? I've got a job interview. Ooh. An interview, is it? No, it was a proper interview, like. Last night, yeah. Was the last night the dirty bit? (laughs) (laughs) I've never known last night to be an innuendo. I was, out with the lad- I was out with the lads last night.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know what the fuck happened last night in your house, but we'll find out in the second half. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as always, you're wonderful. Uh, Nicky Morgan's our guest in the second half. is very exciting. So if you've got a question you'd like to ask Nikki, do think of it. And as always, at the end uh, of that uh, section, I shall come around the audience. Well, I'll stay on stage. We- we- don't you fucking start. <laughs> Six and ten a fucking carry-on film since when did satire get so pervy? I don't know what's happened to the temperature in this room, but I'm I'm not in control of it anymore. It's become a very horny audience. Let's all just have a cold shower in the break. Do whatever the fuck you need to do. I'll be back in a bit. Thank you very much. Cheers. Oh, my word. Thank you very much, everyone. Welcome back. Have a good break. Woo. Yeah. Excellent. Still all horny as hell. <laughs> I don't know what is going on in this room tonight. I feel bad for introducing Nicky Morgan to it, but
2: uh,
1: there we go. Um, I'm very excited about tonight's guest. Um, it's always fascinating to talk to people who have served at the highest level in Cabinet, um, and particularly to have served in the Coalition Government as a Conservative under David Cameron, and then potentially, of course, because uh, she's exceptionally talented, could find her way back uh, to that position, or perhaps even higher in the future. So, uh, a, a fascinating period in Nicky Morgan's career uh, to be talking to her. Uh, don't forget that you get to ask questions uh, later on, so do think of those. But for now, ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge welcome to Nicky Morgan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. you.
1: you. <laughs> Nicky, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, when I said that I'd interviewed you last night, there was a kind of... I heard. From these ladies <laughs> I heard.
0: Down here. Honestly, it was just an interview.
1: It was <laughs> just an interview, just to clarify, in case there was anything that... <laughs> I don't think anyone else misconstrued
0: it. OK, it's on camera.
2: <laughs> that makes it sound worse. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that makes it sound word.
2: <laughs> word. Oh,
0: come <laughs> Are you blushing? <laughs> um, no, that's... <laughs>
1: That's where you slapped me. Oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: well, it's a momentous day we talk in politics. Article 50 was triggered today. Um, you're probably sick of talking of it. Yep. About it. Um, but, but I just ask you quickly again. Okay. Well, I uh, uh, this may sound peculiar, but I found it quite sad today watching Donald Tusk react to it. And I sort of, uh, even though the result, when the you know it was obvious that we we're going to leave and we're going to leave in two years' time, but it did feel. It felt like a backward step to yeah. me, and I, I know you're part of a party now that has basically gone full Brexit,
0: but was there any part of you that felt sad? Yes, very much. I mean, I think actually I woke up this morning with a with a heavy heart. Um,
1: Especially after last night.
0: You <laughs> 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 agreed not to talk about that. So, um, yeah, I, I, yes, it was with, with a heavy heart, and, and but also a feeling of, well, okay, we're there we're not getting on with it now. We've been talking about it for ages. I, mean, I think there are people, I think you said last night, or somebody said to me, to, I've had so many conversations, I can't remember now. Somebody said, but haven't we done Brexit yet? So I think an awful lot of people are thinking, God, what's been happening for the last nine months? So, so we're there, we'll get on. Um, but I think the Europeans are, despite what people like to think about them, I think they are very sad that we are going. We've been a, we've been a fundamental part of the European Union. And we've said thanks, but no thanks. And uh, I think they are—they were taken aback. They realise it's going to happen, but some of them, particularly the Irish, um, because we have such a relationship with with, with Ireland, um, are very, very sad to see us go. And in terms of
1: where you stand on it now, because you're, you're involved in Open Britain, yep. which was which is the sort of successor body to Stronger In, which was the official Remain campaign. Is the position of Open Britain that we should have another referendum at some point in the future, or is it simply just to? keep that 48% of people politically satisfied?
0: No, the position is that we um, now are working to stop what we call a hard, destructive Brexit. And that means that crashing out with uh, no deal um, and coming to the worst possible uh, arrangement that will really um, uh, undermine our economy. And I, obviously I think many of us would think leaving the single market and the customs union uh, does that. And uh, But, you know, we've got to make the best of what has happened. Um, many of us were arguing for Parliament to have a final meaningful vote. Mm. Um, And Parliament will find a way to have a say. Whatever happens during the negotiations at the end, we will find a way to make our views known to uh, the Prime Minister and Ministers. It's really important that people communicate, carry on communicating their views about what's happening to their local Member of Parliament. You know, whether you're running a business, whether you've got an individual reason for being concerned about what's happening or, or, or supporting it, it's really important that people make their views known. It must feel quite
1: odd have sort of campaigned alongside your colleagues many of whom now like Amber Rudd and Theresa May have gone like full brexit like is i understand that they have to deliver the will of the people but it must be odd seeing the people that you were shoulder to shoulder with during one campaign now almost saying the complete opposite
0: yeah it, it's it's you're right. I understand because because people, when you become minister, you adopt the collective position of the government, and the government, Theresa May, made it very clear well, will will fulfil what happened and the vote that was um, that took place, uh, and that means for Amber developing a new immigration policy. Um, you know, easier said than done. Um, you know, it's like I can say immigration policy. It's going to take months of years of negotiation as to what that actually means and does that satisfy people and how they how they voted. But it's been a really strange period. I've been involved in the Conservative Party for 28 years. Um, I joined when I was 16, and I think this has been the hardest period in the Conservative Party that I have known. Partly because, first of all, you're campaigning on a different side from your colleagues last year. And I say this somebody was at university with Dan Hannan. Um, oh my word! And Jacob Rees-Mogg. I'm hot, reckless. Uh, so um, I did have some normal friends at university as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, but but but. You know, as Conservatives, you are used to, it's a bit like being part of a football team or anything else, you're used to being on the same side. Yes. You're used to uh, when you see somebody on TV, you know, saying, actually, that was a really great interview and everything else. And then you're suddenly saying, well, actually, I don't quite agree with what you've been saying in the last 12 months. And you're right. And then other people, you know, people end up in government. Uh, I'm not. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's another dividing line. It must, how bad did it get during that referendum campaign then?
1: Because David Cameron, I think, was quite good at rising above. Some of the provocation thrown his way from specifically Michael Gove and yeah. Boris Johnson. Did you ever feel that they'd gone too far in in trashing him, or or indeed just the behaviour of their campaign in general?
0: Yeah, there were definite times, I and mean, I can't really remember now. I and mean, I think the best the best book to read. I'm not sure I'm allowed to advertise is, is the Tim Shipman book about what happened. All that war. I have to say that is a it is a it is an excellent read. And as somebody who's got bits and pieces in there, you know, I recognise so much of it. And there were times definitely when people. Uh, went too far. And I think it was a shock, actually, to number 10, because I think they had thought that people would uh, pull their punches, certainly on the Conservative side, and then they didn't. You know? And the trouble is, I think as politicians, once you're into a fight, you're there to win it, and you're not going to pull your punches. And uh, people thought, and I think, I, I don't know whether all people who Vote Leave thought they were going to win, but many people did not. And you saw that in the shell-shocked looks of Boris um, and Michael the next morning when they stood on that uh, press conference and looked taken aback at what it actually <laughs> happened. They didn't look that delighted, oddly. <laughs> well, you could argue a lot of the Brexiteers have not looked that delighted since, <laughs> because they suddenly realised that actually, I think that's one of the things about today, I've been saying to people, I was on uh, Five Live earlier on with Suzanne Evans from UKIP, and I said, look, today it stops, in the sense of it's now time for delivery. These people have been saying for years they want to leave, these are the things they want to achieve if they leave. Okay, let's see if it happens. You know, I'll be there and others to ask questions and say, are we sure we're doing the, this the right way? But these people have made promises, and it's now time. And, you know, there's Nigel Farage today saying, if Brexit goes wrong, I'm going to emigrate. Hang on a second. (laughs) What a very tempting thought. But what about the people who uh, voted to leave, often because they felt they hadn't done uh, so well in life, life was pretty unfair, they were feeling very left behind. They don't get the chance to emigrate when it goes wrong. Uh, You know, he can't just waltz off. Um, and that's the difference between people who actually accept responsibility and those who don't. It must have been. I mean, during that
1: period, then did you ever pick up the phone to Boris or IDS or any of those people and say, "Look, this is getting a bit out of hand"?
0: I didn't. Uh, other people, I think, did, and I think channels of communication did remain open. Um, Tim Shipman makes clear in the book that people like Chris Grayling did tell Number Ten when they were going to be um, <laughs> slagging <TV>. it off. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm going to be doing this. I'm doing an interview, whatever it was. But others, others didn't behave in that in that way. I think there were there were channels, but um, but no, I was sort of head down, you know, getting on with the Remain campaign. And do you think
1: David Cameron fought it as effectively as he could have? I suppose the results suggest that he didn't. But could he have done things differently? I,
0: I think there were personally. I think there were things. I think from talking to him, I think he is very convinced that actually that they, they ran the you know the right the right campaign. Um, but as you say, the result is the result. Um, a- and I would have liked to have seen a more positive uh, thing put forward about about Europe, particularly yes. for younger voters, uh, about what we gained from it. Um, and um, and I think push back further on all this rubbish about the Turks and they were going to join and come and take over the rest of Europe and everything else. There was so much disinformation, or misinformation that didn't get that didn't get challenged. Fake news. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> because I felt.
1: Uh, it sounds like such an odd... Admit- I, at times felt deeply sorry for David Cameron, particularly when he resigned after the referendum and then it, it's asked Prime Minister's questions because I think too often he didn't show how much the job meant to him. Yeah. I think a lot of the time there was just the impression that actually, is he really in politics for any particular reason? He, he seemed quite less laissez-faire. And then right at the end, I think, the magnitude of it either hit him or mm. hit us that he felt that way. Do you think that he genuinely did care throughout his time in office and do you think at the end... I mean, is he now still sort of distraught about what happened?
0: I wouldn't say he's distraught. I think he obviously is thinking about it. He's writing his book, so the trouble with that is you've got to relive it, yeah. uh, which is probably quite painful. Um, he loved being prime minister not not for the trappings of office or anything else, but I think he well, stepped down
1: from his old house,
0: wasn't it? <laughs> 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 yeah, that number ten, you know, <laughs> it's really really not that exciting. No, he. I think he genuinely loved the ability to uh, to, to, to make things happen. Education was something he was completely passionate about, which has its drawbacks when you're Secretary of State because you've got the Prime Minister wanting to know what you're up to. And occasionally, you're like, please could you just go away and run the country and I'll do the stuff in education. Uh, but, but he was genuinely interested in, in that. Um, and I think he did sometimes make it look too easy. Um, we were just talking about Prime Minister's questions. Mm. And, you know, he, he did uh, make it sometimes. And sometimes you don't always get the tone of questions in the House right. You can misread the MPs and, and the seriousness or otherwise of a situation. But he did also have sometimes a good throwaway line. He was able to, to switch from something serious to something more light-hearted very, very quickly. And, and he worked phenomenally hard. I, mean, I think anybody who's a minister, and that's one of the things, you know, is that you are working. In fact, you you're really you measure the time when you're not working because you are working all of the time. You're on call, and particularly as Prime Minister, all the time. I think he got up at five, half five every morning to do his boxes. Um, and we have got three smallest children um, that means that that's quite a time when you're not seeing them. Mm. So, uh, but you know, that's. I mean, he also is a political realist. You know, he knew that the referendum was lost. He would have to move on, and there was no messing about.
1: And, and as a boss, what
0: was your relationship with him like? Uh, it was uh, very good, as I say. Just occasionally, I was able to say, "Look, you know, just please go and do that." But um, we, and how did we, you take we.
1: That was that always very cordial, was it? Hey, yeah. What's going on with these <laughs> <pretty> bloody schools? I. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> <really? laughs>
0: I can't get my head around this. Why aren't
1: we delivering them sooner?
2: I, I don't know.
1: Were you there? Do you bugging <laughs> in the conversations? That's how I you
0: Bloody well do
1: want to do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I quite liked his demeanour. Yeah, he, he was, you could basically uh, ask him or talk to him about almost anything. I mean, we've had conversations about you know, all sorts, because obviously we would often go visit schools. He liked visiting schools, so we would go and do that together. So he'd be on the train, he'd be chatting about politics, family, uh, education policy. Um, and, um, you know, he was he was very good in, in that way. Um, and he was good at bouncing things off. Uh, but also, no, ideas rather than <laughs> throwing things at him. Um, and, um, but also he was good at, uh, I, I think I was saying on the pregnant last night, good at texting. So, you know, you send him a text and you get a reply back. And you go, I just want to tell you about this or that. Um, and he was also good at taking a, um, an idea. If you, he would accept a challenge. If he said, I want to do this, and i go, but actually, can we not do it this way? Or that's a really, that's not quite right for now. He would want to engage with that. Whereas some people say, you know what, I'm in charge, just do it.
1: And in terms of cabinet then, because this is, this is interesting with the differences between him and Theresa May. And a lot of people during the Blair year said, oh, this is this sofa style of government. Uh, cabinet's not a decision-making body anymore. And then Gordon Brown says, I'm going to get rid of sofa style government and bring about the cabinet. And then David Cameron says, I'm going to get rid of this cabinet, bring about sofa style government. And then Theresa May comes in, get rid of sofa style government, bring about the cabinet. It just feels like there's this cycle between Prime Ministers who say, I'm going to be quite relaxed. And then the predecessor always says, actually, I'm going to be very serious now. Um, is there a balance between the two, and, and should Cabinet be a decision-making body, do you think?
0: I think there is a balance between the two. I think you have to recognise these days, actually, Cabinets. I think Theresa May has, I think, a few people in her Cabinet. I think she slimmed it down slightly. But it is more about presentations and keeping colleagues updated as to what's going on. I was going to make a joke about a second, you then, but I thought it was, <laughs> 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 I
2: thought that
1: was... I thought that would have been unfair. Thank you, that's very right, nice.
0: No. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think so they make presentations um, I think uh, you're right it hasn't been a decision making bo- body I don't think for a long long time um, but you've got to recognise that actually a lot of the decisions do get made at the top particularly in coalition they had mm. the quad so they had uh, Prime Alexander. Minister Danny Alexander George Osborne and um, Nick Clegg thank you yes <laughs> 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 so cruel how <laughs> quick
1: something you absolutely have in common with the public most people have forgotten Nick Clegg um, I feel bad for saying that because he was lovely when he came. He's a nice guy. He is we? a very
0: nice guy. Yes. He's, yeah. I think I'm going too soft on people.
1: <laughs> um, but that, that sort of that cabinet style, so the way Cameron would run it. Would he say, right, here's what we're doing this week? And would he ever sort of surprise you? No. Nicky, could you just update us on what's going on with these bloody GCSEs?
0: Just occasionally, you'd yeah. get, or you'd know that, that something was going on, kicking off, and that he would just sort of turn to you and say, could you just do, can you just do you know, two minutes on that? The, the thing is, he didn't like long presentations. So you really had about maximum about five or six minutes to present your stuff before you could see the pen tapping and, you know, it was kind of like, let's move on, let's get to the questions, which is, which is useful because you got colleagues who talk about, any, you know, they could interrupt on any of the subjects um, and they could put their point of view across. And sometimes people do it on the basis of their local experiences. So they might talk about, well, actually, I've got this issue in my local school. Is that something that's happening across the country? And it's a good testing ground.
1: I suppose a dynamic must emerge, particularly, and I would give Cameron credit for this, he didn't regularly fire people, no. kept people in situ probably longer than most Prime Ministers have done and would. So there, there must have be a sort of, maybe not a classroom dynamic, but a workplace dynamic where someone gets up to speak home and goes, oh, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> Were there those sort of characters around the table where you think, oh, great, Boris is going to say something? Or would you think, oh, here comes fucking Boris? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, well, was there any of that? I, I sat in political cabinet with Boris, but yeah. um, not in, um, in main cabinet. Um, yeah, there were a few people who you'd think, "Oh, okay, I'm just going to sit there and look at my papers while they're while they're talking," um, and others who would be really, really um, engaging. So, uh, yeah.
1: So um, let's start with the people that were boring. <laughs> 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 were there any in particular that you
0: could sort of call? Um, oh, I'm just trying to trying to think. No, I'm not sure I'm going to really dump anybody in <laughs> okay, it. Actually, so uh, you know, and everybody everybody has their moments. Sometimes you just have to present something, which is. Really, I mean, I will tell you, Oliver Letwin is, is fantastic, <laughs> but poor Oliver sometimes had to sort of tell us about, you know, sort of some really very worthy, but not terribly exciting government stress test exercise that had gone on of, I don't know, energy demands or something. And, um, and you think, OK, this is really, really important. I should really know this. But actually, I'm going to read the briefing for my next meeting instead. So, um, but, but he would then have done his duty in terms of updating the National cabinet. That's something that was very important.
1: And with handsets and things, actually, saying Cameron's really good on text. Were people around the cabinet sort of often on their phones? Oh, no, are not allowed to
0: be. No, oh, there's yeah. No, there's a... There's a um, you have to hand your phone, your phone in, and uh, you put it... Uh, partly birthing, so you're not sitting there looking yeah. at, looking at Candy stuff. Candy crush, But... Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but also, because sometimes you're discussing matters that are very, very sensitive. So they don't want any electronic devices. So just occasionally, we would discuss very sensitive stuff. So the primers say, right, everybody's handed their phone in, haven't they? And there'd be a bit of shuffling feet and looking at the floor. You go, right, who hasn't handed their phone in? And out from these pockets would come a phone, an iPad. And there would be like, right, OK, X is going to go around the room. This is an amnesty. You've got one chance to hand your phone or your iPad in <laughs> or your BlackBerry. So out would come all this stuff. Right, OK, we have a rule. You can't bring this stuff into the room. Next week, could you please remember that rule? So And then there was one time when Michael Gove's phone went off and I can't remember what the tune was but it was something really inappropriate <laughs> <laughs> and Michael couldn't find the off button <laughs> <laughs> so we all sat there looking at Michael is he it's kind of your worst nightmare where the phone goes off it wasn't I don't think it was a terribly sensitive moment of the meeting if any but. Michael go can find his own off button <laughs> <laughs>
2: <You're well> done, <laughs> better place.
1: it's just interesting sort of imagining because I think from the outside it's, it's easy to imagine coming as being very formal uh, but of course, these are still individuals around the yep. table with jealousy and with ambition and things. And obviously, put, in terms of the seating plan, it's, a, it's about what the office yep. you hold is. Um, but would l- little cliques emerge?
0: Um, I think undoubtedly there are um, people... There are, there are some ministers who just work together a lot. They'll know each other. There's obviously the National Security Council. So there are some ministers that have got higher security clearances. So they're inevitably, they're the ones who tend to sit nearer the centre of the, the, the table... Um, and um, yeah, and they're always. I mean, there are, you're right. There are friendships. There are people who know each other for a long time, um, and uh, and of course there will be there will be moments when actually there will be you know something serious. But actually somebody would say something. You know, Red is a lot harder. Just the light the mood, particularly if you're dealing with something really really serious. Yeah. Um, and I remember that Saturday cabinet when we approved the the referendum happening, and yeah. you know, the prime minister had a list and he went through and he wanted everybody to make a contribution. Mm. Um, and uh, some people confirmed they would be campaigning obviously for the for the leave side.
1: And that was the sort of was it right? Well, we knew off?
0: we knew it wasn't quite that, but people did say, "I'm going to be," you know, "I've I've made up my mind." And so it wasn't a great secret. I, I'd said earlier many months ago I would be a Remainer unless something extraordinary happened. But there were a couple of people who, you know, we thought they would be leave, but but they just confirmed it in that in that meeting. And you were aware that was a very that was a historic meeting. Wow. Um, were, were there any sort of mutterings when that happened when people declared? You, were going, mm. <laughs> you didn't
1: say that last week. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, a, a, a little bit, but I think most people were at that stage. I mean, nobody knew what was what was to come, mm. and I think everybody was determined at that stage. We're all going to carry on being nice and friendly and work with each other and uh, and everything else, and that happened for a bit. It's fascinating,
1: sort <laughs> of. <laughs>
0: sort of think of that
1: period where actually I think most people on both sides thought probably win and stay in the EU. The tone of it, I mean, the t- just tone of Britain it feels like it was <laughs> years ago now. Are there any sort of specific memories you have of perhaps when the doubt started to seep in when you thought, actually, this, I think we've lost?
0: Um, I think about May time. So what, what happened was that uh, the, the people in the Cabinet who were campaigning for Remain would get together. And about May time, I mean, we're all... Um, you know, one things commonly believed about politicians is we're all out of touch, we haven't got a clue what people are thinking. Well, actually, if you're doing your job properly as a constituency member of Parliament, and particularly as, with a big campaign, you should be out... Knocking on doors, talking to people in, uh, you know, the, the marketplace, watching your emails, responding to your surgery appointments, and I think people began to realise. Um, I remember Anna Subri, um, who's calling East Midlands, just saying, "I'm really worried about the Labour vote. You know, it's just not being either communicated with, or they don't feel motivated to go out and vote. It's just nowhere. And you know, I don't think it's a great surprise. We were relying. On many Labour voters to come out and vote Remain, and, and I'm not sure the machinery was as, as much as we had we had expected.
1: Do you resent them for that, the the, the Labour Party?
0: Um, I think a lot of voters do. There are there's quite a lot of anger. People people do say, and I think again in the Tim Shipman book, you know, he portrays a um, a certain well, a chaos or an unwillingness on the Labour side to really engage in the referendum. Um, which caused immense frustration. And, you know, Labour wouldn't be, individual Labour MPs would be part of Stronger In, but Labour itself wouldn't, wouldn't come on board, for example.
1: You mentioned there being a local MP. A lot of the job of being a local MP is, it must be, at times, quite sort of tedious or, or novelty. Are there, any, are there any things that you've had to do in Loughborough that you think, what are, the hell am I doing? You know, because <laughs> you must get invited to sort of loads of different events and things.
0: Yeah, well, you've got to, I mean, uh, luckily I like curry, uh, you know, and and you eat lots of curry, uh, because we have a large Bengali population, and uh, lots of great events, um, but you do end up eating a lot, you know, and people always feel the need to feed you, I'm not quite sure, it's lovely, but, you know, when you're on to your third, I have had times I've had to eat three lunches in one one day. Yeah, me too. I should be in
2: Parliament.
1: You do really
0: well. Um, but I think one of the strangest things was when I had to, uh, there's a local uh, canal clearing charity, and they do great work of, you know, pulling rubbish out of the local canal. And they said, could you go onto the canal, a little inflatable dinghy, and throw a shopping trolley into the canal so we can then demonstrate our prowess in removing it? And I thought, there's a- so on YouTube somewhere there is a video of me throwing a shopping trolley into the Loughborough Canal. <laughs> Like off a
1: bridge, like did you have to lift it first?
0: Well, it was quite heavy actually. Um, it was I was in this boat on my own, and they said, Right out you go, and then just throw the trolley over. And um, it was a lot harder than it looks. So you can't ask for help with this shopping trolley, so I did do it eventually. But
1: do they, is there any part of you that thinks maybe this isn't the right thing to do?
2: (laughs) (laughs) But just in case, you know,
1: like you know, local MP trolleyed or you know, whatever the yes, there are, whenever you're. Do you ever worry that actually this is a photo that could always come back?
0: Oh yeah, there, there are definitely definitely times. Usually when as I say, when you're when you're eating, you know, mouth and we all know the danger of the politicians being caught, you know, shoving food into their mouths. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got them there thinking, and there's a camera right there and you're thinking do I, do I eat this mouthwash? I put it down, I talk to somebody else. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there, are, there are definitely definitely
1: things. So some sympathy with Ed Miliband for the, <laughs> for the bacon sandwich.
0: Well, it's just, I mean, I think with all of us, there are times when you'll do or say something and that is the memory that people have of you and you think, actually, I wish so. That could have been something different. <laughs> it's good that you get so much curry, though. <laughs> it's great. Hot, how how hot do you go on your curries? Oh, I'm not. I uh, know. I'm not. I'm not a great um, hot curry. Uh, sort of bolty or butter yeah. chicken or lower or yeah, no bolty. Yeah. Okay, sort of medium. so medium. Medium, absolutely. And it's all because it's all um, you know, it's Fruit. all homemade. <laughs> free, yes, free. But it's all homemade, <laughs> yeah. so it's delicious. And w- so if you go to Korea, what what would you all, what, what would you have for a
2: starter? Uh, oh,
0: I don't know, uh, chicken tikka.
1: Chicken ticket start. It's a classic
0: start. And then, and then <laughs> <laughs> he's, <laughs> so hungry, he's getting hungry now, aren't you? Just yeah. He
1: want to let me to do the big stuff before <laughs> we go on to the lighter side oh, of politics. Okay. So, would you have a garlic naan? Would you have rice with it as well? Or? Definitely
0: rice. Yeah, some uh, some ni- nice uh, fried rice. Oh, um, lovely.
1: And then, um, would you any sides? Any veggie oh, sides? Oh, I don't know, Sargalu Oh, lovely. <laughs> maybe like a mango lassie or something like that. Yeah, maybe. You got to be careful <laughs> if you eat too quick. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, so, so, um, I did have quite a big meal And I was sober I had it quick in the afternoon And it, it, it didn't stay down <laughs> So I had a mango lassie at the end Just to take the edge off and uh,
0: That was a mistake It was a big mistake And you
1: had guidance <laughs> <laughs> We could have been better off um, So Cameron was
2: uh, so t- <laughs> I mean, Moving, moving so, swiftly uh, on Moving
1: swiftly on but Talking of things that leave a bitter taste in the mouth um, <laughs> David Cameron's decision to call a referendum. Um, did, when he went, um, was it sad? You know, did, at the final cabinet, were people sort of tearing up and saying, well done, David? Or
0: Yeah, no, it was. Uh, I think um, I think it was George Osborne who, I, I mean, I think we were very aware this was, a, a, you know, a, again, a moment of history. And, uh, George Osborne was said, I can
1: see the front page now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> George had the tributes and then we all, and then George, uh, I think a, a few of us said something and then David just said, just stop. He said, I'm British, I can't take any more, let's just get on with the business of the meeting. And that was, that was very, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, all right, let's just do that. So, um, but people were very aware, then they, when they left the Downing Street, um, that, was a, that, was a, that was the last cabinet meeting, which was going to be chaired by David Cameron. And did you immediately think, I wonder what happens to me now? Oh, I think I, well, I, I, don't forget, it was all, um, I'm just thinking, by the time we had that meeting, so we knew that Theresa was going to be Prime Minister. Um, and I was to think that was on the Tuesday, must be on a Tuesday morning, and then on a Wednesday, uh, David Cameron did the last PMQs, and then Theresa May became Prime Minister later that day. Um, so I think by that point, I knew I was probably on a hiding to nothing. <laughs> Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
1: Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com
0: slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: <laughs> because it, you backed Michael go for the leadership. I did. Um, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> a There's growling going <laughs> on. <laughs> But you knew him well, obviously you'd taken over his, his yeah. education brief, you'd been on different sides of the referendum, so <clears> his conduct in that campaign wasn't sufficiently bad for you to not back into the Leeds.
2: <laughs> <laughs> good question, it is a good question
0: and, and I think um, I thought that actually somebody, given the result, um, actually that somebody who had campaigned for that would be able actually to, uh, to, to explain to the Leave voters that about the necessary compromises and I think we will have to have There will be compromises as we leave the European Union. People who think that, actually, that's it, we're going, you know, we're going to leave the Europe and we're going to tow ourselves out to the Middle Atlantic, are going to realise that's not going to happen. And the question is, who's actually going to explain that to people in a way that then doesn't cause uh, a next sort of, you know, howl of of outrage and all politicians lie kind of stuff. And I just thought that somebody like uh, Michael or Boris, who'd done that, you know, who led the Leave campaign, would be the best place to explain that to people. So then...
1: Go sort of announces then sort of gets mullered. Uh, after that period, then, you, you're faced with the choice of Andrea Leadsom and Theresa May. Yeah, it wasn't really a choice. Because <laughs> 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 Andrea Leadsom had sort of come out of nowhere. Yeah. Was particularly well known. Um, and uh, didn't handle her campaign too tactfully <laughs> with her tra- attacks on Theresa May. She's then rewarded with a place in... Government and and you're not. I mean, mm-hmm. does that? In fact, it sounds like Andrea is on her way here. She yourself, "Yeah, she's singing
2: in the." <laughs> 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 she's
1: still singing, she's so happy. Um, is, is it hard to stomach that sometimes? You think, well, actually, I behaved well, and here's someone who's directly attacked the Prime Minister, and she gets a job in government, and I don't.
0: No, because I think we all know that uh, political careers, you know, what's that for saying? They all end in failure. Yeah. And uh, you go up, you go down. You know, it depends on uh, who you uh, support. Are you in the right place at the right time? Does your, does your face fit? Um, and clearly mine didn't. So, uh, you know, and I think that probably Theresa wanted to recognise the fact that Andrea had stood down and saved the party and the country... From herself. Well, (laughs) yes.
1: (laughs) Does such a a favour by not taking it over, really?
0: But from a three-month leadership campaign, which which would have been, I think, fairly uh, grim for everybody to watch.
1: So then Theresa May becomes Prime Minister, and, and when she relieves you of your duties as Education Secretary, I mean, she literally couldn't bring herself to say the words, could she?
0: No, well, there's a, th- so I've told this, this, uh, this story before, but um, when I sat down in front of her, um, and you get summoned to the office, her office, Prime Minister's office, in the House of Commons, so you know that basically that's it, you're for the chop, because you're not going to have to walk up down the street in front of the cameras. And and feel, I mean, but when you get that call, do you think, oh, fucking hell, man, I was still holding out hope, you know? Yeah, a maybe bit. not in those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't far off. Um, and I texted my husband, and I texted my uh, private office in the department, my private secretary, and just said, "I'm going to the, office the House of Commons. Doesn't look great." Uh, went downstairs. The Downing street staff don't really want to look you in the eye because they know what's coming. I saw <gasps> Oliver Letwin disappear in to the uh, to the office and um, banging
1: on about his energy review. <laughs>
0: No, Angie, you out. Um and um and then you get ushered in and you sit down in front of uh you know her at a, at the big table and she says, um, well Nikki, I'm forming a new government, and um I'm afraid I'm gonna have to um and I said, Let me go. Yeah. She said, Yes. So <laughs> Oh well. So then I said, Can I just ask for why? she said, Well, I'm forming a new government and I've got these you know different people I'm gonna put in place. So that was that really. And um, does she look you straight in the eye when she says it? Or is it a bit kind of, oh, well, you know, this government
1: thing, I mean, ugh. <laughs> 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 oh, no, to question? be
0: fair to her, she looks you straight in the eye when she says I it. She says. So. Yeah. And so.
1: did you say, like, is there any chance I can come back at some
2: point? Mm-hmm.
0: No, I did i to be honest with you, I think you just know at that point, you think, actually, thank you, I'm now leaving. I did, I did. Uh, I don't know if it's a great secret, but I had a fantastic PPS who's a parliamentary private secretary, he's an MP, who looks after you as... Uh, when Secretary of State, and he blazes the Parliamentary Party, and I just said that I hope that he can, you know, his great work can be remembered in the reshuffle, um, and he's now a Minister in the Department for Exiting the EU. So I'm delighted for Robin, because he's fantastic.
1: Oh, that's that, at least some good.
0: Exactly, exactly. A, at least some
1: good came out of it. I mean, it must be, when you're, when you're going then to, to sort of effectively get fired, they must have to time it so that you don't bump into other people.
0: Well, they, <laughs> yes, they're sitting you in on, on lots of different rooms, basically, and they call you out one by one. So, uh, so that's why I thought said. Oliver. I can't remember who. I can't remember who went in after me actually, but I think I texted. I texted George and said I've been fired, and I texted Michael and said I've been fired. But oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Did George Osborne do you think uh, hold out realistic hope of coming no, a No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I think that George. Um, george understood that, that she was going to want the prime minister is going to want to put her own imprint on on the cabinet and I, and i think you know again i think outside it, it's such a weird world westminster and and it's not an, a normal working environment in any sense of the the world you don't apply for jobs you don't you know sort of prepare a cv if you get a call from another ten reshuffle day that's that's good and sensible to downing street i was very surprised but delighted in july 2014 to get a secretary of state job but you also know you know you can you can it can it can all go up in a puff of smoke, um, but you're still a member of parliament, um, and you know actually there are some there are some great bits and disadvantages, advantages like not having a no more red boxes at weekends. It's fantastic.
1: <laughs> so how much stuff is in them?
0: But how much? Um, how, how long would it take to get through one? A really chunky box is about a really chunky box is about seven or eight hours. No, six seven hours. So full working day. Yeah.
1: Um, and then a sort of light one, an average one would be what sort of... Three uh, well, days.
0: I do uh, so one every every night. I do one on, on Monday to Wednesday nights, and that's probably a couple of hours a night, two and a half hours. And then the weekend one is, yeah. Which is
1: quite nice when you're Secretary of State for Education, because you're having to do sort of marking... It's like and homework, like, yeah. <laughs> I used to go <laughs> like to schools t-
0: and go, I do homework too. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: when you were Secretary of State for Education, um, it must be very difficult to hold a position like that as a Conservative, because in an area like Education, which... The debate seems to be entirely dominated between the relationship between the unions and the minister at a government level. And of course they're affiliated to your, to your enemy, the Labour Party. Did you ever feel like actually they, they were quite pragmatic with you, open to discussion, or was it always very cold?
0: Well, they were, they were different. So there's about, um, I'm going to probably, know, because one of them just just merging, but there's about five, four or five main teaching unions um, and they are all very different. Some represent uh, head teachers or senior leaders. Some represent what you call the classroom unions. Um, and, um, and actually, I remember one of the, the union uh, secretaries coming to me and he said, look, my job basically is to hold up your reforms. But if we can agree on that and you know where I'm coming from, then let's talk about them. And I thought, actually, that, that's quite good. I know where you're coming from. You know where I'm coming from. Let's then talk about actually what we can what we can do to work together, or or actually I could just say to him, look, I'm really sorry, but actually this is the way we're going to do it. Um, you know, you're not going to like it, but at least we've had it. We you know we've talked about it. I've heard your view, you've heard mine. Now we get on with it.
1: And, and following Michael Gove must have kind of been a bit of a blessing, really.
0: <laughs> must have been
1: a lot of people quite pleased to see you initially. Initially, yes. <laughs> no, that sounds like an awful caveat. I'm sure all the time, yeah. but.
0: No, but you're, you're right. I, mean, I was, you know, I was, I am very different from Michael and I was put there because I'm very different <laughs> from Michael and to sort of, you know, calm, calm everything down. Not to change the reforms, but uh, there was a lot of explanation needed about why we are reforming and what we were doing. And people were finding, I think, local MPs that they couldn't visit schools without getting an awful lot of, uh, you know, barrage of, of, of being unhappy. And that doesn't help anybody. So mm. actually we, we, uh, we did, I think, explain, try to put it in context as to what we were, were doing. And I think you have to also remind yourself, Secretary of State, you're there to, rep, to, obviously to represent and to listen to the whole sector. But particularly, I think, to be on the side of parents and families who need really good schools to set them up for life.
1: So that was, that's the sort of uh, the policy end of it. The policy now, obviously, is, is grammar schools uh, to a large degree. Uh, that dominates the education policy agenda. That's something that you're against is that something that's put you on a collision course with Theresa May? Has she spoken to you? Said, "Oh, come on,
0: Nicky." Um, I haven't spoken to Theresa about it. I've spoken to Justine about it. Yeah. Um, and I've explained pretty pretty clearly, you know, what my my views are. I just I just think that actually, as I say, what the system really needs at the moment is a laser like focus on those parts of the country where the schools aren't strong enough, where they're struggling with leadership and with recruiting you know, great teachers. And the trouble with more reform um, is that you bring something else in, the department immediately focuses... That's what government departments do, it's the civil society. They switch to focus on that, because that's come from the top and that's the directive, rather than continuing the, the focus. And I think if I you know, had been allowed to stay, I would have said, let's just stop doing almost everything else in the sense of changes and really focus on those parts of the country where um, there isn't a choice uh, or real choice for, for for parents and for families at the moment... Um, but that hasn't happened. And, and so, I'm, I, you know, one of the things about not being in office is you're then liberated to say what you really think, which actually is uh, very <laughs> enjoyable. Why do you think Theresa May has
1: brought back this idea of grammar schools?
0: I think it's partly her, and I think one of her key advisors is also, um, I think he's written in the past about his belief in, in, in select and sexual education. I think Theresa May herself um, went to she went to both a, I think, a, I think it was, a, I'm right saying, a grammar school that became a comprehensive. And I think she feels that her grammar school education absolutely set her up for life and got to the position that she's in. And she wants other children to have that same opportunity. And look, there's no doubt with some people, they are very popular. With many Conservative Party members, they are a very popular institution. Lots of people will say... It's interesting, people are shaped by their own experiences. Some people will say, I went to one, it was fantastic, what's the problem? Others will say, well, actually, I failed my 11+. plus. It, it's... I'm really... It's upset me for the rest of my life. Please don't reintroduce them. And it, it really is as polarising as that. And that's why I think just at the time when we've got many other issues, having a polarising policy like that is um, is a distraction.
1: And, and you set up a kind of coalition with Nick Clegg uh, from the Liberal Democrats, um, who I'm sure people do remember now, and, uh, <laughs> and and Lucy Powell, who's your opposite number in the Labour Party. I mean, that must be viewed with suspicion in Downing Street. They must look at that and go, what is she up
0: to? I think they do that in many different ways. <laughs> so uh, I think it's not just about this. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's probably... I mean, I think also, but... Um, certainly, I think uh, Theresa Ministers I now mean, I understand politics, which is that uh, and it's not just about grammars, it's about social mobility generally, and I think there's more that can be done, and the Social Mobility Commission have reported, and we had a debate on that last week. Um, but you do need to sometimes work cross-party to get things done in Parliament. It's one of the great uh, mysteries, I think, is that people look at PMQs, and it's kind of the, the best and the worst of Parliament. It's the time of the week when most people are engaged, and the public gallery is packed, but it's also the worst, because it brings out the worst in people. It can be very, very um, uh, very aggressive, very combative. And it brings out the worst in
1: people as well. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it can, it, it, well, I, I don't mind it when it's like that. I think it's when it's a bit more tedious. That's when I get frustrated. Yeah. It. Well, it's pretty tedious at the moment. It is. I, I, I don't know how people... But I've always preferred it when it's a bit more raucous. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's there's lots of excitement, but I have to say, I mean, you know, um, the the leader of the opposition, um, I think PMQs is not his strong point. And I think that... uh, (laughs) interesting to get your opinion on on what you think is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I can ask that question.
1: No. I I mean, having viewed Corbyn from the opposite side, does he cause the Tories any trouble at all, do you think? does Does he concern you as an opponent?
0: No, I mean, I think, no, I, I mean, it, it, there's clearly something going on in the Labour Party at the moment, talking to Labour uh, MPs um, who are, and I think I came in, so you were talking about uh, momentum. Um, there's, there's, there's obviously clearly, you know, lots of dividing lines in the Labour Party, and they've got their own particular, you know, areas of grief, which I don't think it's right for opposition politicians to uh, intrude on. Um, but, um, I mean, that's one thing about the Europe stuff, is being that actually there is a total lack of an official... Uh, Keir Starmer's doing his best, yeah. and I think, you know, Keir absolutely is trying to put down markers for the Labour Party, but there isn't an official opposition, not not a really fully functioning one at the moment, so other people have got to step up to the plate and ask the questions.
1: It's obviously frustrating for a lot of moderate MPs, but I suppose you're in a position where you're quite frustrated with your own party, are you? I mean, would you ever get to the point where you you could see yourself not being a member of the Conservative Party?
0: No. I've been a Conservative for 28 years, and I, um, I am instinctively a Conservative, um, that's not to say there aren't uh, people... And, and Europe has been a dividing line in my party for decades now. Mm. And there are people, and uh, I don't think it's any great secret, who you know I do find, I'm not on the same side of them as, uh, on this Europe question, and I do find it very, very frustrating. I find it frustrating that they've talked about it, that they've brought down not just one, but several Conservative Party leaders over the mm. issue of uh, Europe. Um, and then yet again, we're going to spend the next two years talking about Europe rather than talking about issues that I think people do care about, um, and we'll vote on in 2020.
1: It's always nice to see people united, uh, and obviously uh, last week at uh, united sadly in, 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 uh, in, uh, in grief yeah. for what happened outside uh, Westminster. Uh, one of the heroes was a Conservative MP called Tobias Elwood who who tried to resuscitate um, uh, one of the victims, the policeman. Mm. Uh, and it was just a, a very emotive, um, very moving photos, uh, especially as he'd lost his brother in the yeah. barley attack as well. So a whole... Um, all the issues that imagine going through his head. But he's someone that you know quite well, isn't he?
0: Yeah, I've known Tobias. Um, he used to work just after I had my, my old law firm that I worked for, and we've known him, my husband and I, through politics for, for many, many years. Um, and it's typical of, of the man. I was saying, so I went to Bangladesh in 2011, and um, we were in a place called Solet, uh which is the region of, uh, of Bangladesh, um, and there was an earthquake. Uh, we felt an earthquake. There was an earthquake, I think, you know, some somewhere away, but the tremors were were there. And, you know, Tobias, again, swung into action. He's ex. He's been in the um, army and swung into action and got everybody out of the building and, uh, t- you know, phone number 10 and said, don't worry, you know, we're all fine and the MPs are all safe and everything else. And that's that's the measure of the man. I mean, he would step in to help in a situation if he could.
1: It's quite remarkable that he's sort of, Co- seems to be constantly present at
2: disasters. <laughs> 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 it's
1: a very positive view that he, he swings into view, but also, he must be thinking, what the fuck is going to happen next? <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a normal day. He, he, uh, he handled it with such grace yeah. It was incredible. Um, just to see... I, I mean, I suppose, it, uh, in, in a way, it's, it, I always think it's tragic that it takes something like that to make the public realise that MPs are really good people.
0: Well, it's funny, isn't it? It's like, uh, I think... I mean, the audience can 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 say, but I think a lot of people would regard their own MP if they know them, if they've had cause to write to them or to visit them in a surgery. They go, my MP's okay, but the rest of them are all you know venal, uh, self-serving creatures. Um, and uh, no that's not that's not true. I mean, uh, there's always going to be bad apples in any organisation. 650 us, there's going to be a couple that let everybody down. But again, I mean go back to one thing David Cameron said in the last PMQs was actually you can get House of Commons is a, is a it's a weird working environment, but it's also a very uh, extraordinary pace. You can get change done, you can get things uh, happening uh, in the House of Commons and that's what most MPs are there to serve their constituents and they try to do it to the best of their abilities. Sometimes you will fall short um, but actually most people uh, are in it for the right reason.
1: Have you found it harder being either a member of Parliament or a member of the Conservative Party as a woman?
0: Um, no to, I don't think to, to either. Um when I joined the Conservative, Party, and the Conservative Party has changed hugely in terms of the um, selection of female candidates. So I think I'm right in saying in 2005 we only had 17 female MPs. After the last 2010, we had we now we've now got 70. So still not enough, and I think the Conservative Party hierarchy would recognise that. Um, but but no, I mean it is a very different place these, these days, and I think local parties realise now the value of having you know, a female <coughs> candidate, or female members of Parliament. I think. There's no doubt, as a female Member of Parliament, you do get more abuse than, I think, your male counterparts.
1: Inside Parliament or outside? Outside.
0: Outside. A lot of it online. Um, I do think that people say things that they wouldn't say to, uh, to, to men. And there's no doubt that men absolutely do get uh, pretty um, hurtful and hateful mail and, and comments on Twitter. But it is, it is somehow different. And it worries me because we need more women in Parliament... And I really, really worry, and particularly after the awful murder of Joe Cox last year, I really, really worry that women are going to look at the job and think, I'm going to leave it to somebody else. And all of my female friends go, I'm really glad you're doing it, Nikki." but I can't leave anything worse to do, and that's a shame, because some of them would make great members of Parliament, but they're going to leave it to others, and I think that's, that's a problem. If we get to that stage where other people are, or good people, are not standing for public office, I think that's a, that's a problem in this country.
1: There's a sort of prevailing view, I think, that perhaps... Um the Conservative Party hasn't been feminism's best friend and uh, despite the fact that two yeah, female absolutely. Prime Ministers which is more than any other uh, political party in Britain has, has mustered uh,
0: could you have some sympathy with that as a point of view? I think it was probably uh, true I mean in the last Parliament a group of us new female MPs made a real concerted effort to make sure that we were present for debates in which issues particularly relevant to uh, women were discussed we were asking questions we supported the Women Equality Select Committee being appointed, but I think I think the Conservative Party has been slower to catch up, and despite having certainly the first female Prime Minister, um, I think uh, it would be fair to say that we have been slower often on the uptake and thinking about women's issues. So things like, for example, Budget Days. You know, actually, um, I used to see it as my role as one of the women around the Cabinet table. The, the Chancellor on Budget Day will give a presentation to Cabinet early, about 8 o'clock in the morning. And I used to make it my point that I, if nobody else, would make sure I asked a question so that a female voice had been heard around the Cabinet mm. table on Budget Day. And I would say to George, what, where are the measures for women? And let's make them explicit. Um, I wouldn't say we always get it right and there are plenty of things that can be pushed back and you haven't done this and you haven't done that. But I think it is, it is much better now.
1: And, and what would George just, just Osborne go? <laughs> Oh shit! Um, yeah, good point, actually. Oh
0: god! Oh. Well, if you remember, I mean, who would have thought that the words "tampon tax" would be uttered by a conservative chancellor in yeah. a budget? Uh, and the fact that we now talk about it quite so openly—I have to say—there are times, and I think that's just that just shows how far we've we've come. And we didn't try and call it something else; we just, you know, called it the tampon tax.
1: Because it was it was quite. In, I remember watching parts of the debate that pertained to that, and it was really funny watching, particularly. It, Old conservative male MPs going and um, the the levy on the um, <laughs> the, the, the products, the um, the, uh, the the things that the ladies use. Uh, that are, uh, yes, that thing that the honourable lady uh, referred to that um, does the um, mm, of whatever it does. Really, funny because sometimes it is better to just be extra so It's tampon tax, absolutely. Um, because did, did you sense around just in politics in general, but specifically around the cabinet table? that perhaps it's difficult for male politicians to talk about things
0: like that? Yes, I think that younger male politicians, particularly those with daughters, they often say, actually, that men become much more uh, feminists or, or you know, pro-women's issues when they get daughters. And I remember uh, talking to... to when they, sorry, they get daughters, that sounds awful, doesn't it? When they, when, <laughs> when they become fathers of, of daughters. And I remember talking to, to David Cameron about this, that some of the issues that I thought we should be on the curriculum. Um, and Justine, to her great credit, has now put uh, Sex and Relationship Education in the statutory curriculum, and there's more work to do, I think, on PSHE, but saying, look, actually, don't you want your daughters to be aware of, you uh, talk about some of these, these issues? And, and it does change, and it was like changing the, the sitting hours of the House of Commons. You know, it's interesting, again, you know, young male MPs with young families actually supported the changes um, because they could see, even if it didn't benefit them, they could understand why for the female MPs it was important to have those hours changed. It,
1: it, it, there's obviously a whole world of uh, um, difference between how you're treated inside Parliament and outside it, just in terms of the outside I mean not the severe abuse because obviously that's mm. illegal a lot of it um, but in terms of just everyday trolling like being on Twitter as an MP do you find it a rewarding experience overall or or, or, is, it, or is it broadly quite a frustrating cesspit
0: um, no, there are some. There are some great tweets and some great trolling. But there are times if you're having a particularly sort of day when you're feeling a bit vulnerable, it's like I think I'm just going to avoid my timeline for a few hours. Um, you know, uh, and I'll go back. There's a particularly good photo. I'm, I, I'm regarded as having uh, slightly staring eyes, and there is a thing about when you're doing an interview, um, what they call down the line or down the, to, to the camera, and you're got to sort of avoid staring at the camera. And there's, there's a great picture somebody put up of me. And an owl, <laughs> 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 and that occasionally surfaces when I've been particularly starey eyed in an interview. Oh, the owl's back! Oh, yes, okay, I must have been particularly starey eyed in that in that interview. But, but does that hurt initially? Well, no, because you—you've you, you, got to be able—you have got to be able to laugh at yourself in politics. I think in life, haven't you? You can't take yourself too seriously. Um, and you're right. There's a fine line between, you know, the one that, that says, um, you know, I'm coming to get you, um, and uh, <laughs> that's Theresa May. <laughs> <laughs> no comment and, um, and the one that, that is gently poking fun at something you know is, is, is a foible I suppose an owl if you're going to be called an owl like it's wise thank you, you. Know, perhaps was, you could you just know. come on my timeline next time I see it Matt come on just come and come and answer this one but at least it's a kind of if you're going to be, liking, like, yes. oh oh yeah, it be like it at least it's oh yeah it could be oh worse God,
1: the rat or you know
2: <laughs>
0: I'm now going to see what turns up in my timeline <laughs> having had having, having this bit of a conversation yeah Any we'll see what happens next
1: but do you, are you ever tempted to reply to it and go oh yes,
0: yes, and I have to stop myself and just think no, walk away, walk away. It's no point. Just occasionally you will get into a bit of a bit of a bit of banter, um, but it is banter. Yeah. Uh, and I was, Carl uh, McCartney said something, uh, one of our MPs last week, and I did reply, and actually a few people kind of liked it. That actually we were on different sides in the Europe debate, but actually we were able to have a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, a go at each other in a friendly way on on Twitter, and, and I think that's that's not a bad thing to demonstrate.
1: I think that's good. I think it's good that MPs are accessible as well because. If people feel like, oh, the only way I can either see my MP is by chance in the street, or I've got to go through their office, and then yeah. you've got gatekeepers. I think there's something. There's something. So refreshing about just being able to directly communicate, and if people get a reply, that must
0: yeah. I do. I do try to keep an eye on people, particularly who are constituents. And we actually had some casework that came in, uh, quite important casework recently from somebody who did com- communicate via Twitter. And I said to the office, I think this is something that needs to be followed up. I, said, I replied and said, in the canal." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, call the council; they'll clear it up. Uh, no, she, and I think I replied and said, "Here's the office phone number." She called, and actually, it was a serious, it was a serious piece of casework where somebody really did need some help, and it was great to be able to, as you say, to sort that out quite quickly.
1: Uh, well, of course, another way you can speak directly to MPs is to be in the audience of the political party and <laughs> uh, seamlessly <laughs> linking on. Uh, we'll bring the House lights up, indicate if you'd like to ask a question. If I can ask to keep the uh, keep the questions uh, brief and keep the answers brief, we'll get around as many as we can. Uh, yes, the chap right at the back. And just let us know your name as well,
0: please. Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. What's Thank your question? A teacher of 25 years and a quick and design for a school, a sharp end of your decisions. My question is about the squeeze on music, arts, design technology. Because of the EBAC, Progress 8, they've been diminished in importance. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think, um, I think the first two, actually, what the um, evidence shows is that actually the numbers of students taking GCSEs in their subject has remained, I think it might even have gone up slightly but it certainly remained uh, stable. I think they are important subjects. Design and technology is a different issue and I do think actually I was quite keen to think about whether we could accommodate that in the EBAC because I do think actually it's something. We talk a lot about STEM but I think that design is a, is a key part of that and I obviously wasn't able to, uh, to make progress on that but we were thinking about how we could reflect that in, uh, in the EBAC development basically. Um, I think the honest truth is the reason we did the curriculum reforms is that some of the absolute core subjects that students need. I mean, English and maths are the ultimate vocational subjects, as are the humanities, as are the sciences. And I say this not as a scientist. I mean, I was very much an arts person. But but I think I wasn't pushed enough, actually, to do sciences. And, you know, when we want young people to have the best start in life, what I don't want to do is to narrow their choices or to think, actually, I'm going to do something else because I think it's going to be um, either easier or I'm going to enjoy it more. Sometimes you do need to be pushed to do subjects that may be harder but actually are going to uh, keep your options open for, for longer. So it's not a deliberate policy. It's not because the government, because the governors don't like music and art and design and technology, but that was the, that was the thinking behind it. It's
1: so basically English and maths are more important than... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I
3: think English and maths are I yeah. think they're more
0: important than
3: well, anything
1: else. Very good point. Uh, Yes, the lady over at the bar.
3: Hello. Hello. Um, I've recently been working with a government department. I don't want to name it, but you probably know it quite well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And we were just talking about social media. Yep. And my observation has been that the department is somewhat um, over-responsive to feedback on social media. It has made me a little bit concerned that um, a huge thousand-person body... Can make its policy decisions based on six people getting a bit stressed on Twitter, um, and I suppose my question really was the point at which you think that there comes a point where Twitter doesn't represent the democratic feeling; it actually just represents a few really noisy, angry people who don't have much else to do. And I say that as someone, I say that as someone who uses social media a lot. Yeah. I'm, probably a, I'm probably an elderly millennial, um, but I think. There is a concern for me, as someone who's worked in the public sector for that long, that when I see very, very senior civil servants being that responsive to individual tweets mm. um, that I start to worry about the decision-making process. And I just wondered your thoughts on that.
1: So We've basically got an exclusive from a senior civil servant. Mutiny <laughs> <of> education.
0: <laughs> education. I think you raise... I think it's a really good issue. I think you do raise a very good question. Um, uh, it's not... Policy is not decided, I can promise you, on the basis of, uh, of just of, of Twitter... But I think, um, I mean, I I did, I had a a Twitter account all the time I was Secretary of State. You do keep an eye on it. I have to say, a couple of times I picked up quite serious issues from people tweeting at me, in the same way that actually people sending me emails. I checked all my emails myself in Parliament, and a couple of times I picked stuff up and was straight on the phone to the department, you know, or or out the door. Um, They used to hate it when the door opened and I'd go, right, somebody in here now, Um, uh, you know, because I've just spotted that that something's gone awry. Um, And I think, actually, it goes back to the point you were saying about replying to to tweets. You know, there's a happy medium, and you can spend all your life. And I think, isn't that a broader point about social media, which is how we use it in our lives? You know, it absolutely has its benefits, and uh, you can talk to people directly you might not otherwise be able to talk to. But you have to control it, not allow it to control you. And I think making uh, decisions on the basis of evidence, proper consultation, listen to what people uh, say, um, and evidence from the front line... Um, and I found certainly my, the most useful thing I did was obviously going visiting schools, sitting in the staff room. Sometimes the conversations are not terribly comfortable, but actually, rightly so, but um, you've got some really good feedback. And I would go back and say, well, why are we doing it like that? Let's, you know, and we actually changed, changed the name of the GCSE because of something that a teacher said to me in one of my visits. But I think you're right about that social media. How do we use it and how do we not get dominated by it? And I think David Cameron said at one of the conferences that you know Twitter we've got to realise that, that Twitter I can't quite remember he something it like, like Twitter doesn't uh, represent everybody, um, and there are lots and lots of people who are, don't engage with social media at all. So we've got to find other ways to get their views.
1: So it depends on the extent, doesn't it? If people are saying you know handing in good ideas to to the Department of Education on Twitter, <laughs> um, if people are saying oh let's sack all the teachers and then it's at Education, great idea, let's do it. You know that would be a problem. That would be a serious <laughs> problem, it would indeed. Yes, the lady at the front here, can we have the, uh, the microphone? Sorry Tim, I'm sending you all over tonight. Uh,
0: today is a historic day, are you optimistic or pessimistic about
1: Brexit? Gra- uh, can I just say, you need to be on the audience for question time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bang, straight
1: in, direct question, no messing about, wonderful. Oh, that was brilliant to watch, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm optimistic we will get a deal, but I think that
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what kind of deal it is and what we said to the rest of the world about our position in the world, I am profoundly miserable about.
1: <laughs> and can we just clarify, is, is no deal better than a bad deal?
0: No, No, I think, I think it would be an absolute disaster. If we were to crash out without a, without a deal... Um, Especially the
1: worst bad deal there is.
0: Absolutely, because because it's a total jump into the unknown, and people who are saying it it'll be fine, I have no (coughs) basis on which to say that at all. Um, Mm. So, uh, so I think it's I think you know a a deal. I mean, basically, Theresa May rightly talks about wanting an ongoing partnership and relationship with the European with the European Union. We're not there, members. We will wait in two years' time, but having that relationship, you can't do that without having a deal with them.
1: Well, that's very true. Uh, do we have any more questions? Oh, yes, there's the gentleman there. there yeah. And then we'll have a look. At, yes, there's someone on the balcony afterwards, Tim. That's right. <laughs> I appreciate this is a highly speculative question. but oh, um, It's actually falling from the last one, but that's only um, coincidental. In this worst-case scenario, is 2019 the end, or is the election... What are you is planning? Is <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, the election in uh, 2020, suppose, you know, it's a bad deal or it's a falling back on WTO rules... What happens in twenty twenty if the Lib Dems are going for we'll vote, vote for us and we'll somehow get back into the EU? Do you as a uh die hard remainer, what do you do if what do you do in that situation if if you're not satisfied what, with what the deal is and we're having a general election at that point?
0: Um well if you were at the Today programme you'd be saying, Well, oh, I don't don't discuss, you know, hypothesis and, and, and everything else and speculate as you say, speculation. Um I mean I think First thing, I envisage standing as a Conservative candidate in 2020. I think it's always better to be in the party, putting pressure on. Um, I think that uh, people will obviously have to make a, make a judgement. I, I mean, I think it's... Well, the Lib Dems have said they want to have a, a second referendum. If that's the, what they choose to fight a general election on in, in 2020, I wonder if the British public would be saying at that point... I mean, people are already, I think, had enough of the whole thing to still be talking about it and then talking about going back in... Uh, I'm not sure that's actually what the British public would be would be wanting at at, at that stage. But it, it, I mean, it genuinely is. Politicians cop out here. It's very, it is really difficult to predict what's what's going to happen in the next the next couple of couple of years. Um, you know, we are um, we are in a really uncharted uncharted territory, um, and um, I think I can see why the you know sending out signals about we might change our minds a couple of years time as you start negotiations you know, is is not helpful. We started negotiations, we are leaving the European Union, let's focus now on the best best possible deal that we can get. It's so sad. (laughs) Um,
1: But we have one final question that will lift and raise our spirits.
3: (laughs) No pressure. The greatest
1: question ever asked. And here it comes...
3: I'm very mindful that you started this interview to talk about what you got up to last night. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, my question is do you think that your constituencies and democracy would be better served with a little less, less use of the whip? Oh, you
2: legend!
1: Mike, you
0: hero! <laughs> so. You're going to be invited back, you know, to do that in the next, the next show.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: less use of the whip. Less use of the, use of the whip. Um, I think that there are times... I mean, to be honest with you, there are times and there are ways that, that MPs make their make their views known. Um, voting against the whip and the party is a pretty... It is an extreme way of, of doing it. And I think also... You know, part of it actually uh, having the Whip's office is to remind people about manifesto promises that we've made to, to the electorate and therefore, you know, you should be in the lobby actually delivering on them. And I think there is a point uh, to, uh, to, to that. Um, but it's always been understood that on issues particularly affecting your local area, there will be times when MPs need to be independently minded and uh, not vote with the government. I'm thinking about things like Heathrow, for example, or HS2. And actually, in my experience the Government Whip's Office will find a way to, uh, to accommodate that. So I was a whip uh, for, uh, for a while, um, and I can tell you that there is actually, not used, <laughs> but there is a whip in the Whip's Office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, well,
1: good to end on whipping, so well done, <laughs> well done, well done. Well done. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you as always for coming. Uh, you are always uh, the best audience in town. Next month's guest, I can't reveal yet, oh, no. but will be revealed oh. on Twitter, hopefully in the next couple of days. It's very exciting. Uh, the month so where are we now? March. So, April will be announced in the next few days. May, Andy Burnham. And June, William Hague. Ooh. Oh, William, William Hague is coming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a ghost,
2: but uh, it seems
1: <laughs> uh, I'm sure you'll agree with me uh, that Nikki has been a phenomenal guest. So, please, ladies and gentlemen, show <laughs> <change> <laughs> <laughs> Nick Morgan there, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm sure at times there you can, you can feel the atmosphere in the room, the, the sadness in the room from some people, uh, the joy from others, uh, and it's great that we get a, a mixed audience uh, down at uh, the, the political party nights, but it felt... Um, For some people, certainly, like a very momentous day the day that Article 50 was signed to that is, uh, I'm sure, reflected in the mood that you just heard. Uh, Nikki herself was brilliant, very funny, very engaging, Uh, obviously uh, razor-sharp, and you can tell uh, why she was able to, to rise so quickly into the Cabinet. I always love those personal details, whether it's about her or David Cameron or or Theresa May behind the scenes. And obviously the realisation that uh, that I have and that a lot of you share, which is that politics politicians are, are people. Um, and, and that personal interest is always fascinating to hear. So she was absolutely brilliant. It was a real pleasure. Uh, as I said at the start, I'm on tour at the moment. So do come and try and see me on that. Uh, it's me on my own doing stand-up and impressions and all that business. Uh, I'm at the Nottingham Glee Club on Thursday the 11th of May. The older shop West End Centre on Thursday the twenty fifth of May and the Dorchester Art Centre on Friday the twenty-sixth of May. Oh, and if you're listening to this in time, you can get tickets to see the final episode of Unspun at TVrecordings.com. Those tickets are free. Um, it's recorded next Tuesday, depending. I mean well, the fact of the matter is, obviously, if you listen to this afterwards, you're too late. The last one of the series is recorded on Tuesday, the 4th of April, 2017. So if you listen to this way in the future. I mean, you'd know that it was recorded in the past anyway. Um, well, everything's... Rec- I'm not going to get bogged down in a bloody time walk conversation with people. But point is, if you're listening to this before the 4th of April, 2017, you could get a free ticket to come and see
2: the next episode of Unspun, which is the last one of the series. So thank you, and goodbye.